0: Good morning, friends. It's with great joy that we open God's Word together today. If you're new to us, maybe you've just moved to Dubai. Maybe this is simply the first week that you're attending Redeemer Church. We just want to give you a warm welcome, and I want to introduce myself. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as a senior pastor here at Redeemer, and we're glad that you're here. We're thrilled that this Friday morning you've gathered with the people of God to worship Him. And today we're going to do what we always do on Fridays. We're going to worship God through singing and through prayers, through Bible reading and through the preaching of God's word. We gather here each week, not because I have something profound to say to you, but because God's word has something profound to say to us. And I've entitled today's message, The Most Famous Sermon. And that's not because I think that I'm such a wonderful preacher Or that today, this very sermon is going to go down in history as the most famous sermon. No, not at all. That refers to a nickname for what we're going to be preaching over the next several months. Today, we begin a series on that sermon. The most famous sermon in the world. Much of it is probably familiar to you, whether you're a follower of Christ or not. Now, these words of Jesus have stood the test of time. Uh, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. I'm sure you've heard this one or even used this one, Judge Not, That You Be Not Judged. Or maybe the internationally acclaimed Golden Rule, which people almost nearly always forget to actually attribute to Jesus, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Well, We've all heard these statements. Even non-believers are familiar with these statements. Well, those are the words spoken 2,000 years ago by a poor carpenter born out of wedlock in a tiny, insignificant town in the Middle East. And yet Jesus' promise in Matthew 24, 35 has proven to be true. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now whatever your views are about Jesus, he said his words would be around forever, and here they are. This very weekend, all throughout the world, from the outermost parts of the world, from the east to the west, his words will be proclaimed in pulpits and in churches everywhere. And perhaps the most famous of his words are found in our text, Matthew 5 through 7. And they're called the Sermon on the Mount. The late pastor John Stott once said, while the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, it is arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. And we've heard this teaching, but do we know what it means? Are we living it out? Well, those are the questions that we want to consider as we walk through this text in the months ahead. While I was talking with my sister about this very sermon series, she laughed at me and said, wow, Dave, it's going to take you 22 sermons to preach what Jesus could preach in one sermon? Well, yeah, I, I suppose that's true. That's what it's going to take, 22 longer sermons by me to, to, to look at what Jesus preached preached in one shorter sermon. When this shorter sermon, these three chapters, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7, the Lord has put these words, put these chapters on my heart over this past year. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this text is changing my life. That I'm not the man I was when I first started studying it. And I'm really excited about preaching this series In recent days at Redeemer, we've been looking at the Old Testament. I've been taking us through various, maybe even obscure Old Testament texts, and we've been taking longer chunks of Scripture. So we've looked at Ecclesiastes, Leviticus, we've studied through Hosea in the spring. We've taken longer chunks of Scripture, and we've seen that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for the reproof, for the teaching, for the building up of the body of Christ. We've seen that portions of of Hosea 6 and Leviticus 20 have something to teach us and are edifying to us. But what we want to do now is we want to take what is very familiar portions of Scripture to us, and we want to walk through those quite slowly. Because while we may be familiar with the words, as Pastor John Stott said, perhaps our understanding is off. Maybe even more so, we're not actually applying them to our lives we're going to walk through it slowly, and we're going to be changing up things in our community groups a little bit. So if you've been with us for a while, for years now, what we've done is we've studied the passage ahead of time in our community groups, which means we're studying the passage that will be preached the following Friday, which we love, which is wonderful, because what it does is it gets us in the text, it gets us to dive into the Bible to see what it says to us, and then we show up on Fridays, and we're expecting, we're we're ready for for worship and the preaching of that word. And so we're still going to do some of that each week, but what we want to do for this next, season as we walk through the Sermon on the Mount is we want to focus on application. If you've been in a group for a while, maybe you've noticed that we spend so much time studying the scripture, doing observation, interpretation, that our application tends to get squeezed out. We tend to not have enough time for it. And so what we want to do in this series is we want to spend lots of time applying the text. And this is very important because the Sermon on the Mount really is all application. If we're not applying it to our lives, then what are we doing with it? If you're not yet in a group, I just want to personally encourage you to join one. We have them all throughout Dubai, all throughout Sharjah. You could head to our connections table on the way out, and they'll point you to one. You could meet or email Pastor John Norris. He can direct you or any of the elders and staff. We'd love to help you get into one of those communities. Well, as we start our series today, I want to do a bit of an introduction. You'll notice in your bulletin, we're really only covering a couple verses, and they're really just introductory verses. And the first thing I want to say by means of introduction is that to call the Sermon on the Mount a sermon is a bit of a misnomer. And this is hardly what we would consider a full sermon. It takes about 15 minutes to say out loud. And it's highly unlikely Jesus withdrew to the mountains. His disciples gathered around. The crowds started following him. And Jesus preached for a mere 15 minutes and then said, okay, guys, I hope you had a, a great time today. Go in peace. I don't think that's all that, that happened. Uh, it's certainly not all that happened. Well, some say that these chapters are a collection of things Jesus taught in his ministry, but I think there's a strong argument for all this taking place in one sitting, though as part of a larger sermon. Directly after the sermon, the end of Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, says that when Jesus finished these teachings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So the crowds were, were there. It seems to have been some flow that the teachings ended up finishing at some point. And so it seems best to understand these chapters as part of one teaching session even if there are a condensed report of a larger session. when even greater debate than this is how the sermon should be interpreted. How should we interpret these words of Jesus? One theologian says that there have been actually 36 different interpretations that have been put forward. And so what I want to do with the rest of the time today is I actually want to walk through each of these 36 different interpretations with you one by one. Now, well, I'm not actually going to do that. Some of you thought this was going to be the most famous sermon in the world because it would be the first 36-point sermon in the world. I don't want to be famous for that. And I certainly don't want Pastor Glenn reminding me that back in the very second sermon in the history of Redeemer, I actually had 20 application points at the end. So I want to refrain from duplicating that and facing the wrath of Pastor Glenn. But I do want to show us some of the misunderstandings that people have had in interpreting the Sermon on the Mount over the years. So just a few of them. Number one is applying Matthew 5 through 7 as merely guidelines for salvation. As in, if you do these things, you'll be saved. But we know from the rest of Matthew, we know from the rest of the Bible that we can't save ourselves, that only Jesus can save us. These are exhortations not how to be saved, but they are serious. So we don't minimize them. They don't save us, but saved people will live these out. These are commands we need to obey, and so we need to feel the the, the weight and the, the gravity and the seriousness of them. Well, another misunderstanding is applying it only as a new law meant to disturb us or even to crush us. What I mean is this, you read the Sermon on the Mount and you see that the the demands are just so great and you feel the weight and you realize how horrible you are and you say, I'm terrible, I'm nothing, I just can't do it. Now, certainly one use of the law is to show us our need for Christ, that's true. So that's part of what the Sermon on the Mount should do for us, but that's not its main purpose. It's also giving us commands on how to live in the kingdom. Well, a third misunderstanding is applying it literally. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The intention for this sermon wasn't to be a law guidebook like Leviticus was in the Old Testament regarding sin and the other regulations. You might remember if you were with us in Leviticus, it gave you exact point-by-point things to do if you had sinned a certain way or if you had come into contact with an unclean body. You had very specific Guidelines that you had to follow one by one. Well, if you do that with the Sermon on the Mount, as some have claimed, then when it says turn the other cheek, it means you can't fight in the military. It means you must be a pacifist. It's interpreted when Jesus says you can't take an oath, that means, oh, well, I can't hold public office as a Christian. Well, the problem with this is to take something seriously doesn't mean you have to take it literally when the genre doesn't dictate it. We'll see at times that Jesus is speaking in extremes to make a point. Well, fourth misunderstanding is applying it only to the future, as if to say the Sermon on the Mount is only guidelines for life sometime in the future after Jesus comes back. Now, regardless of your views on the end times, this doesn't make sense because the sermon speaks about people hurting, being stolen from, it speaks of enemies, persecution divorce. Those don't seem like things that happen in an an idealized state with Jesus. There's also imperatives in the sermon that are in the present tense. Go, rejoice, give. Well, and a final misunderstanding is applying these only as rules for a better society. That hey, if you do these things and follow the sermon on the mount, the world will be a better place. Now, of course, that's true. If the whole world followed what the Sermon on the Mount says, certainly the world would be a better place. But that's not all that Jesus is doing here. The best way to, to interpret the sermon would be to see the sermon as describing life in the kingdom now and forever. Now and later. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, to his followers, and he's telling us what his kingdom looks like. We see this throughout the book of Matthew. Matthew is all about the kingdom of God. You'll see it at times referred to as the kingdom of heaven. This is out of sensitivity to its Jewish audience, which would have thought it offensive to speak the name of God. But Jesus starts and he ends the sermon talking about the kingdom. And you'll see him referred to it throughout. He'll say the word is, seek first the kingdom of God. where to pray to the Father, let your kingdom come. Don't think of the kingdom, though, as some geographic location. It's not a political country with an earthly king. This is a kingdom without geographical boundaries. There's a sense, though, that God's kingdom is universal. He certainly rules over every square centimeter on the face of the earth. No one can escape it. But there's also a sense that the kingdom Jesus preached is a, is a smaller subset of that universal kingdom. To be in the kingdom of God is to live under God's rule and reign anywhere in his creation. This recognizes what's called an already and not yet tension that we see in Matthew and and the Bible. With Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection, we see that the kingdom has begun. The kingdom is here. The kingdom has commenced, but the kingdom won't be fully realized until Jesus comes back. So how do we take the Sermon on the Mount? Well, we take it for us both today and for the future. We take it both now and later, and we take it seriously for now. We live in light of it with a great reverence because what the sermon is doing is showing us what life in the kingdom should look like. And so if you want a main point for the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, Matthews 5 through 7, you could say it's about how believers are to live in the kingdom, it's all about life in the kingdom now and forever. And we, don't, we know we won't live out these things perfectly, not this side of heaven, but we work hard to live in light of Jesus' teaching while we look forward to the new creation where we will do God's will perfectly. Well, let me just set up the context a bit further and kind of tell us where we're at in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 we see that Jesus, he is fully into his public ministry. He's in Galilee. He's teaching in the synagogues. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He's healing every disease, every affliction among the people, preaching and teaching and healing so much so that Jesus is is garnering quite a bit of attention. His fame was spreading, and the crowds were following him. Now look at chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. As the crowds were gathering around him, as they were following him, Jesus retreats to the mountain. We see Jesus do this quite often for a variety of reasons, sometimes to pray, be with the Father, other times to be with his disciples, there's not necessarily anything wrong with the crowds. That's not why Jesus is leaving. Throughout the book of Matthew, the crowds are seen as neutral. They're observers, onlookers, maybe a bit curious as to who this miracle worker is. Maybe they've heard some of the teaching and they they they, they want to hear more. But Jesus is focused on teaching his disciples. A disciple is simply a follower of Christ. Now, There would be an inner circle of 12 disciples, also called apostles, people like John and and James and, and others and Peter. But the word here is referring more generally speaking to a disciple who's just simply a follower of Christ. So we have the crowds. They were more neutral. We have the disciples. They were the ones following Christ. And then you also see throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus referred to the teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, these were the enemies of Jesus. These were the ones who opposed the message of Christ and even sought to see him killed at the end of his life. So the audience starts, Jesus' followers, the audience then grows, and by the end of the sermon in chapter 7, you have a whole crowd there. Jesus is speaking to his followers, But another aspect of his preaching is that those in the crowd, those that would kind of begin to gather around, he would desire the crowd to become disciples. So this is our prayer as well on Fridays. We design our worship gatherings to build up the body of Christ, to build up our church members, to build up other believers here. And so we sing uh, rich songs that point to Christ. We pray Bible-based prayers. We, again, take passages of Scripture and we, 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 we preach them in order to build up the body of Christ. And yet at the same time, we pray that those who are in the crowd would also follow Christ. And that's what's happening here in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus, he's preaching to his disciples. They're gathered around him. He wants to see their lives changed. But then he also wants to see the crowd become disciples. That's a powerful passage. Some of you, I know, have already begun to read ahead. Maybe this week you read through chapter five through seven and you began to feel the weight of Christ's commands and exhortation there. The words are stunningly beautiful. What I want to do with some of our time today is I want you to get a sense of the big picture of what's happening here. But rather than reading it, what I want to do is I want to recite it to you. Now, remember, these verses weren't read by Jesus, but they were preached by Jesus. And so by God's grace, what I want to do is I want to preach through Matthew 5, verse 3 on until the end of Matthew chapter 7. Now, it's quite a bit longer than our normal Bible reading. And I know it won't be perfect from my memory. But what I want you to do is I want you just to listen I don't want you to follow along in your Bible. I want you to keep those closed because I want you to feel the same effect that the hearers in Jesus' day felt when they were simply sitting and listening uh, to Jesus proclaim these words. And as you listen, as I preach the text, just one point of application for you. Just want to encourage you to listen for yourself. As you hear these words, let them convict your heart. I don't know, maybe it'll be a specific word, maybe a specific verse in the text that convicts your heart and leads you to repentance of, a, of an area of sin. Or maybe it's one of the metaphors that Jesus uses that grips your heart. I don't know what it will be, but listen for yourself. I know it's tempting sometimes in sermons and it'll be tempting in the Sermon on the Mount to maybe listen for the person sitting next to you. You know, this is what we call Elbow church where you hear something that you are really glad the person next to you is hearing and so you give them a little little nudge of the elbow just to make sure that they're hearing it. Or maybe you're not quite as subtle and you clear your throat at the exact point just to make sure the person next to you is awake. Let's leave our elbows to ourselves today. Let's not clear our throats unless we really need to. Let's let the words impact our hearts. Let it pierce and melt our hearts and draw us to repentance. Well, again, you'll see the context, verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when Jesus sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and he taught them saying. That's the the introduction to the sermon. And now, here are Jesus' words from Matthew 5 through 7 Here's the words of the sermon on the mount these are the words of Jesus Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, and whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going within the court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone would slap you on the right cheek then turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone would force you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will receive no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received the reward. But when you pray, go into your room. And shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, then neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites who love to disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about the body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? I mean, look at the birds of the air, how they grow. They neither sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them? Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, Even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all but seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For in the judgment you pronounce, you'll be judged. And in the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. How can you say to your brother, how do you see in your brother's eye a speck in his eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck that is in your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log that is in your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For whoever asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, then how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophet's. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, it's like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell. And great was the fall of it. These are the words of the Lord. And then we see at the end of chapter seven, we see the crowd's response to those words I just preached, to the words Jesus preached. When Jesus had finished those sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, oh, friends, these are amazing words. This is hallowed Ground. In those days, Jesus' words left the crowds astonished. They were completely stunned. They were amazed. They were shocked because in that sermon that he preached, he turned their whole world upside down. Did you notice how countercultural that sermon was and is? It's jaw dropping. In the sermon, Jesus totally redefines honor. Remember, the entire culture at this time was an honor and shame culture. I mean, how would the sermon have been heard back then? Well, the society, they were supposed to fight for honor and fear shame. So the men, the leaders of the household, their goal was to bring a good name to their family, was to bring honor to the family, to despise shame, to fear shame, to fear and leave weakness. But Jesus, what he does is he completely transforms the fundamental value of their culture. He redefines what constitutes as honor and whose acknowledgement truly counts. There's a foregoing of public performance of spirituality. There's an emphasis on heart change before God. Many of us actually come from honor and shame cultures, and in those cultures we're told that it matters what people think. And so we spend our lives trying to live in front of an earthly audience. So we live in certain houses, we buy certain cars, we might even be tempted to plan our weddings or force and push our kids to certain marks in school merely for the approval of people around us. We can even aspire to ministry positions in order to try to find respect from others. But Jesus is countercultural. He says you're living for the wrong audience. Your public performance and desire for honor is misguided. When we do that, our hearts are turned in on themselves. Yes, you were made to receive honor, but true honor comes from living for the reward and praise of our Heavenly Father. And Jesus redefines honor. I hope that'll be something that you come back to and something that continues to change your heart as we preach through this text over the next several months. But before we get to next week and the rest of the text, let me leave us with three prayer requests. Just three things that I'm praying for us in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. The first thing I'm praying is I'm praying that the Sermon on the Mount would transform our lives. The main goal of this sermon was not to declare laws to disciples. Now, there are certainly commands, but the point is to deal with our hearts. Its main focus is on hard issues of pride and worry and lust and misguided interest and wealth and so on. So as you study this sermon, take a good look at your life and ask yourself, are there areas in my life that I need to change? Is there a specific sin that I need to repent of? Am I living for earthly riches or heavenly glory? Am I living like a citizen of the kingdom at home, in the workplace, in my school or university? Well, my second prayer. Second prayer request is that the Sermon on the Mount would transform our community. That our church would look radically different as we study this, because this sermon isn't only about you, it's about us. It's not only speaking about our personal and private relationships with God. We have to read it through a community lens. It's about being citizens of the kingdom, yes, but more so it's about being citizens together in the kingdom. This sermon is about us. It's about forgiving one another. It's about being patient with one another. If we live this out, our church would certainly look like a city set on a hill. Which leads me to my third prayer request. I pray that it would transform your lives. I pray that it would transform our community. I also pray that our study of the Sermon on the Mount would transform our country. I pray that it would transform our country. Did you notice the missional emphasis of the sermon? There will be persecution. It's because our lives are to be countercultural. We're to be salt and light. We're to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. We're to forgive. We're to live lives that stun the world. That's what the sermon is about. We're to live as citizens of this kingdom in such a way that it'll draw the crowds to be disciples. the sermon is not just about you, and the sermon is not just about us. You see a real missional emphasis throughout the sermon— Oh, Jesus wants the crowds to know him. The disciples themselves were called to be fishers of men. Their goal was to be salt and light to the world. And so that's what I'm praying. I'm praying that the crowds here in Dubai would become disciples here in Dubai. That's what I want us to pray for. And so, friend, if you're here and you're not yet a disciple, this is first a call to you. Changing the country first starts with God changing you. So how are you going to respond to this teaching? By the end of it, as we go through it, either you recognize Jesus as the Son of God or you don't. Either you recognize Jesus as the authoritative Son of God or you turn away to something else. And the problem with turning away to something else is that everything in the sermon points to Jesus being divine, even in that introductory first two verses we looked at. Him going up on the mountain reminds us of Moses on Mount Sinai, and the authority that that pointed to. As he sat when he taught, that pointed to kingship, because kings, they sit when you come into their presence. And in those days, if you were an authoritative teacher, you would also just remain seated while you talked. And the text even says he opened his mouth as he spoke. Maybe when you heard those words, you thought that they sounded a bit silly, because of course, his mouth was open as he spoke. The point is, this man was saying something important, that he had authority. He'll say in chapter 5 that I'm not abolishing the law, but fulfilling it. The point is, this preaching has authority. And at the end of the sermon, the crowds, as we said, they were astonished at his teaching. The first reaction of the original hearers was, wow, who is this teacher? So friends, what is your reaction to this teacher he's either the son of God or he's not he's either God in the flesh or he's not and if you don't believe that he's God in the flesh then none of these other words matter my prayer for you is that if you're not yet a follower of Christ that you would see him for what he really is for who he truly is pray that you would see that without this king intervening for us that we are dead in our sin that our rebellion leads us in judgment And that's bad news. But the hope of this authoritative teacher, this one who is fully God and fully man, is that a Savior has come. And his name is Jesus. And he was born of a virgin. He faced the devil's temptation. He preached with authority. And he performed miracles over life and over death. And he marched to that cross to forgive his people for their sins. It's a countercultural gospel. Weakness is the way. To be big is to be small. To be the champion is to be humble. To be victorious is to give up your own rights. And so Jesus, the true champion, went to the cross in humility. We see that this one who went to the cross rose from the dead. And at the end of Matthew, his last words say that all authority over heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus says those words. The hero who dies is the one who has authority. It's completely backwards. Not a story we would have ever written only one god would have written and done for us so friends there are two gates one is narrow and difficult one is wide and easy which gate will you enter there are two kinds of fruit one that comes from a healthy tree and one from a diseased tree which fruit will you bear will you build your house on the solid rock or will you build it on sinking sand let's pray you build it on sinking sand. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may the Sermon on the Mount transform our lives. Would it alter our hearts, our community, and our country? Oh, would the dead be raised to life? And would our community here at Redeemer, would it be a city set on a hill? Would we be salt and light to the nations? Oh, would we pursue Jesus and his kingdom with fervor and great expectancy? Oh, we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.